The dollar, in case you are wondering, is the name of more than 20 currencies. They include the Australian dollar, the Brunei dollar, the Canadian dollar, the Hong Kong dollar, Jamaican dollar, Liberian dollar, Namibian dollar, the new Taiwan dollar, New Zealand dollar, Singapore dollar, and of course, the United States dollar, among several others. The modern Czech town of Jakimov, back in 1520, used to be in the kingdom of Bohemia. They started minting coins called Joachim's Thaler, or Thaler for short. Thaler in German, Daler in Dutch, and Dollar in English. There are two quotes in the plays of William Shakespeare referring to dollars as money. Coins, known as thristle dollars, were used in Scotland during the 16th and 17th centuries. And use of the English word and perhaps even the use of the coin may have begun at the University of St. Andrews in Scotland. This assertion may actually be supported by a reference to the sum of $10,000 in the work of Macbeth. The Netherlands introduced its own dollars in the 16th century. For the English North American colonists, however, the Spanish peso, or pieces of eight as it means, has always held first place, and confusingly, this coin was also called the dollar as early as 1581. Spanish dollars, or pieces of eight, were distributed widely in the Spanish colonies and in the New World generally, including the Philippines. Today, as of May 2022, dollars are mostly associated with the US dollar, the United States dollar, lovingly also known as the USD, considered by some, though not all, as a so-called hard currency, something of value and something that's interchangeable, meaning it's accepted by a lot of people. You may, or indeed may not, have come across the term petrodollar. The dollar reserve currency, sanctions, economic sanctions, reserve currencies, something pegged to gold, and then not pegged to gold. My goal in this episode is to understand the story of the USD and where it's going, both from an economic perspective and geopolitically. In short, what you should keep in mind is that the petrodollar and the political dollar, and what I might be calling later on the militarized dollar, are one and the same thing, and sometimes people get confused and it gets conflated, but they are exactly the same thing. To understand the petrodollar and the dollar regime generally, we need to understand a few basics that make the US dollar the actual political petrodollar. Number one, dollars paid to oil-producing countries, sometimes known as petrodollar recycling. It was a term invented in the 1970s. It basically means trading surpluses of oil-producing nations in dollars. This, by the way, is the most popular understanding of what the petrodollar is. It means the U.S. buys Saudi oil in USD, India buys Saudi oil in USD. Secondly, currencies of oil-producing nations, which tend to rise in value against other currencies when the price of oil rises and falls, these are typically non-USD currencies. But currencies of countries who have tons of oil are pegged to the US dollar. So 
the Saudi currency would be pegged to the US dollar. Then there is the pricing of oil in US dollars itself. What does that mean? It means two things. One, that your own currency is pegged to the US dollar. And since everyone needs oil, so other trade can also happen in US dollars. So the US buys and sells goods to Brazil in US dollars. But it also means that Brazil buys and sells goods and services to South Africa in US dollars. Because ultimately, it is the currency of choice. Why? Because you can always trade your US dollars for oil and other energy and indeed other services. So you peg your currency to the dollar regime. It's done out of sheer convenience. Number four, you could say, is military hegemony, meaning that the American dollar is backed up by the US government, who will use its military in order to preserve the hegemonic status of the dollar regime. And I guess the fifth and last thing is that there are no alternatives. This is an important To keep the status of the reserve or only keep it as the single biggest transferable currency instead of other currencies, the U.S. needs to keep the dollar as its only, or in fact, it's the world's only reserve currencies. So currencies in the U.S. tributary states, such as the U.K., Canada, EU, Japan, that's acceptable. It's bearable. However, major trade in oil in all those currencies is still not. Alternatives outside that for the U.S. is unthinkable and would need to be settled by hook or crook. And if any country outside the U.S. or its tributary states deals in non-U.S. dollar, that will be a hegemonic issue for the American state. Okay, so after World War II, international oil prices were for some time based on discounts or premiums relative to that for oil in the Gulf of Mexico. After the Bretton Woods Conference in the year 1944, the UK and its allies discontinued linking their currencies with gold. However, the US dollar continued to be pegged to gold at $35 per ounce, and that lasted from 1941 to 1971. President Nixon of the US cancelled the fixed rate convertibility of the dollar to gold in 1971. In the absence of fixed value convertibility to gold compared to any other currency, the dollar subsequently deteriorated in value for several years, making fixed dollars to local currency exchange rate unsustainable for most countries. And then the key decision was an agreement in 1971 and 1973 where OPEC oil is generally quoted in dollars. That's the petrodollar. That's the key moment. This was immediately followed by a crisis, however, because in October 1973, OPEC declared an oil embargo in response to the U.S.'s and Western Europe's support of Israel in the Yom Kippur War. So when the members of the Organization of Arab Petroleum Exporting Countries that was led by Saudi Arabia claimed an oil embargo, the embargo was targeted at nations that had supported Israel during that war. The initial nations targeted were Canada, Japan, the Netherlands, the UK, and the US, with an embargo later extended to some other Western European countries and Rhodesia and South Africa. By the end of the embargo in March 1974, the price of oil had risen 300% from $3 per barrel to $12 per barrel globally. US prices were significantly higher. 
The embargo caused an oil crisis or a shock with many short and long-term effects on global politics and the global economy. It was later called the first oil shock, followed by the 1979 oil crisis, termed the second oil shock. The crisis eased when the embargo was lifted in March 74. That was after negotiations at the Washington Oil Summit. But the effects lingered throughout the 1970s. The dollar price of energy increased again the following year, aimed at the weakening competitive position of the dollar in world markets. But a quick and significant digression before I go back to the oil price shocks. You see, while all this was going on, and the USSR was stuck in Afghanistan, and the Iranian revolution was going on in Iran, came what became known in the U.S. as the Carter Doctrine. This was a policy by then-U.S. President Jimmy Carter in January 1980, which stated that the United States would use military force, if necessary, to defend its national interest in the Persian Gulf. In fact, Carter's Secretary of State said, and I quote, Let our position be absolutely clear. An attempt by any outside force to gain control of the Persian Gulf region will be regarded as an assault on the vital interests of the United States of America, and such an assault will be repelled by any means necessary, including military force. End quote. The Carter administration began to build up the rapid deployment force, which would eventually become CENTCOM, a military unit focused on that specific region. As you may be able to tell, the jigsaw pieces are falling into place. All right, going back to the oil price shocks. The price increase had a dramatic effect on oil exporting nations for the countries of the Middle East, who had long been dominated by industrial powers of West, and they had seemed to have taken control of their vital commodity. These oil-producing nations began to accumulate lots of money. And that too, US dollar money. Western central banks at the time decided to sharply cut interest rates to encourage growth, deciding then that inflation was a secondary concern. Although this was the orthodox macroeconomic idea of the time, the resulting stagflation surprised economists and central bankers. The policy is now considered by some to have deepened and lengthened the adverse effects of the embargo. This price shock created large current account deficits in oil importing economies. A petrodollar recycling mechanism was thus created, through which OPEC surplus funds were channeled through the capital markets to the West in order to finance those current account deficits. The function of this mechanism required the relaxation of capital controls in oil importing countries. It marked the beginning of an exponential growth of Western capital markets. The crisis had a knock-on major impact on international relations and created a rift within NATO countries. Some European nations and Japan sought to disassociate themselves from the U.S. foreign policy mechanism, especially in the Middle East, especially related to Israel, to avoid being targeted by this boycott, Arab oil producers linked any future policy changes to peace between the belligerents. To address this, the Nixon administration began multilateral negotiations with the combatants. 
they arranged for Israel to pull back from the Sinai Peninsula and the Golan Heights. By January the 18th, 1974, U.S. Secretary of State Henry Kissinger had negotiated an Israeli troop withdrawal from parts of the Sinai Peninsula. The promise of a negotiated settlement between Israel and Syria was enough to convince Arab oil producers to lift the embargo in March 1974 and again during the 1979 energy crisis. In 2004, declassified documents revealed that the U.S. was so distracted by the rise in oil prices and being challenged by underdeveloped countries, underdeveloped countries, that they briefly considered military action to forcibly seize Middle Eastern oil fields in late 1973. British Prime Minister Edward Heath was so worried by this prospect that he ordered an intelligence estimate of U.S. intentions that concluded America could not tolerate a situation in which the U.S. and its allies were at the mercy of a small group of unreasonable countries. And then they discovered that they would prefer a rapid operation to seize oil fields throughout Saudi Arabia and Kuwait, and possibly Abu Dhabi if military action was ultimately decided upon. The U.S., which imported about 12% of its oil from the Middle East compared to 80% of the Europeans and 90% for the Japanese, remained staunchly committed to Israel, so it complicated matters no end. With the embargo in place, many developed countries altered their policies regarding the Arab-Israeli conflict. These included the UK, which refused to allow the US to use British bases and Cyprus to airlift resupplies to Israel, along with the rest of the members of the then European community. Canada also shifted towards a more pro-Arab position after displeasure was expressed towards Canada's mostly neutral position at the time. Although lacking any historical connections to the Middle East, Japan was the country most dependent on Arab oil. 71% of its imported oil came from the Middle East. On the 7th of November 1973, the Saudi and Kuwaiti governments declared Japan a non-friendly country to encourage it to change its non-involvement policy. It received a 5% production cut in December, causing near panic. On November the 22nd of the same year, Japan issued a statement asserting that Israel should withdraw from all of the 1967 territories, advocating Palestinian self-determination, and then threatening to reconsider its policy towards Israel if Israel refused to accept these preconditions. By Christmas 1967, Japan was considered an Arab-friendly state. The oil embargo was announced roughly one month after a right-wing military coup in Chile, led by General Augusto Pinochet, toppled a socialist president, Salvador Aldene, September 1973. The response of the U.S. government was to propose doubling arms sales. As a consequence, an opposing Latin American bloc was organized and financed in part by Venezuelan oil revenues, which quadrupled between 1970 and 1975. A year after the start of the embargo, the UN's non-aligned bloc passed a resolution demanding the creation of a new international economic order, under which nations within the global south would receive a greater share of benefits derived from the exploitation of southern resources and greater control over their own self-development. In the wake of the 1979 Iranian Revolution, the Saudis were then forced to deal with the prospect of internal destabilization via the radicalism of Islam a reality which would quickly be revealed in the Grand Mosque seizure of Mecca by Wahhabi extremists in November 1979 and a Shiite Muslim revolt 
in the oil-rich Al-Hasa region of Saudi Arabia in December of the same year. These events knocked OPEC down a bit, and OPEC soon lost its preeminent position. And by 1981, its production was suppressed by other countries. Additionally, its own member nations were divided. Saudi Arabia, trying to recover market share, increased production, pushing prices down, not up, down, and shrinking or eliminating profits for higher-cost producers. The world price, which had peaked during the 1979 energy crisis at nearly $40 a barrel, decreased during the 1980s to less than $10 per barrel, and adjusted for inflation, oil briefly fell back to the pre-1973 levels. The embargo encouraged new venues for energy exploitation, including in the U.S. state of Alaska, the North Sea, the Caspian Sea, and the Caucasus. Exploration in the Caspian Basin and Siberia also then became profitable. Part of the decline in prices and economic and geopolitical power of OPEC came from the move to alternative energy sources. The drop in prices presented a serious problem for oil exporting countries in Northern Europe and in the Persian Gulf. Heavily populated, impoverished countries whose economies were largely dependent on oils such as Mexico, Nigeria, Algeria, Libya, did not prepare for a market reversal that left them in sometimes desperate situations. When reduced demand and increased production glutted world markets in the mid-1980s, oil prices collapsed and the cartel lost its unity. The shock to the system, in my view, resulted in increased U.S. interest in the Middle East, Venezuela, and other oil producers. This included military bases, intervention, arms sales, and other activities to link these countries back to the U.S. dollar regime. Countries that had erred from the dollar, like Iran and Venezuela, were subject to rude awakenings with military intervention, sanctions, and other things, including subjecting them to insurrections with the hope and a prayer of installing friendly leaders. This ecosystem found its way and ultimately was established in the early 1990s following the fall of the USSR, and it lasts up to today in 2022. However, and this is the big however, the US dollar regime is under severe pressure and strains, some self-inflicted by the US government itself, while others, more nimble rivals, are trying to counter the dollar. But what is this ecosystem and what is the dollar regime? The Bretton Woods Conference, formerly known as the United Nations Monetary and Financial Conference, was the gathering of 730-odd delegates from about 44 allied nations at the time, and this was held in Mount Washington Hotel in Bretton Woods, which is in the state of New Hampshire in the U.S., and it was designed or it was organized to regulate the international monetary and financial order at the end of World War II. Countries in those days dominated by Western countries, sought to establish an international monetary and financial system that fostered cooperation and growth amongst the participating countries. They ultimately wanted to avoid the complications that happened during the interwar years due to leaving the gold standard, things like the Great Depression, trade wars, and all kinds of other problems that led up to World War II. They would need a kind or something that fostered a kind of equilibrium in exchange rates and prevent things like devaluations and ultimately protect incomes and employments. Again, the whole thing was designed around the security of the Western society and Western environment. The Bretton Woods Conference had three main results. One, 
Articles of Agreement to Create the IMF, whose purpose was to promote stability of exchange rates and financial flows. Secondly, Articles of Agreement to Create the IBRD, whose purpose was to speed reconstruction after the Second World War and to foster economic development, especially through lending to build infrastructure. And number three, other recommendations for international economic cooperation. The final act of the conference incorporated these agreements and recommendations. Most importantly for us, for our purpose, the US dollar was established as the world's foremost reserve currency by the Bretton Woods Agreement in 1944. It claimed this status from the British pound sterling after the devastation of two world wars and the massive spending of Britain's gold reserves that ultimately ended up in the coffers of the US and Wall Street traders. Oh, one more thing before I forget. There is something called the euro dollar. Euro dollars are time deposits denominated in US dollars at banks outside of the United States and thus are not under the due restriction of the US Federal Reserve. Consequently, such deposits are subject to much less regulation than similar deposits within the US. The term was actually originally coined for US dollars in European banks, but it ultimately expanded over the years to present definitions for any US dollars anywhere. These euro dollars are essentially the reserve currency holdings outside the US. Ownership of international financial institutions such as the IMDB and the World Bank or the IMF allowed the US to control the world's monetary policies. The peg to oil let the dollar be the currency of choice. All of that coupled with US-based banks, technology, military, and media companies creates what we call the dollar regime, the petrodollar. It allows for the US government to do things like impose sanctions and even something called secondary sanctions, meaning sanctions to anyone not sanctioned, but doing business with someone who is sanctioned. In addition to sanctions ranging on anything from people to entire countries like Iran or Russia, the US can control the supply of the dollar itself. In other words, printing or digitally printing and just creating new money out of literally thin air. Outside of the ability to print its own reserve hard currency, the US also enjoys other major benefits, including the US financial companies who are all privately owned and operated, but live under US government regulations, meaning they are subject to huge US government pressure, public action and regulation when it's needed. Think Wall Street, but not just Wall Street. Think about banks, insurance companies and financial transactions institutions. So we are looking at credit card companies, banks, investment banks, insurance companies, private equity, and so on. It's actually quite a lot. The private sector does not stop there. The financial sector is deep in bed with large corporations who rely on the stock market and customer demand for profits and share price gains, who in turn need it for retirement growth. It's a vicious circle that needs to keep going. So, so where is all this going? How long will the dollar regime, the reserve currency, and this whole US-led financial system or ecosystem last if it's going to last at all? I'm going to break it down into a few categories. Well, actually two categories, one foreign and the other domestic. Let's start with domestic. Number one, financial mismanagement of the US economy 
from within, i.e. the financial crisis, debt, and inflation and just printing money is a threat to the dollar regime. The second one is foreign. And what does that mean? That means that when the U.S. sanctions regime starts going crazy abroad and it uses the dollar as a weapon on non-state and state actors, it results in the rise of alternative currencies and other countries doing business with each other without the dollar. Let's dig a little deeper into this. Let's start with domestic again and the destruction of the U.S. economy from within. I've said this on other episodes of this show, and that is that the U.S. is essentially a socialist state with capitalism only for the middle and small-sized businesses. It's otherwise monopolistic or oligarchist for big businesses. Otherwise, you are working in, with, or for the massive government. But regardless, a lot of people in the U.S. are still invested in the stock market. Plus, terrifyingly, a lot of Americans' retirement is dependent entirely on the stock market. And by that, I mean the stock market permanently going up and up and up. This need to secure retirements and big corporate profits led the U.S. to the 2008 to 2009 financial crisis that, in essence, was because of dodgy deals on subprime mortgages. The U.S. Federal Reserve, i.e. the central bank, basically bailed out all the banks, insurance com- some insurance companies, bunch of car companies, in addition to airlines. In a capitalist society or in real capitalism, these companies would have collapsed. Instead, the government printed enough money to bail out the companies, a process cleverly disguised and called quantitative easing. Compounding this was the 2020 to 2022 COVID pandemic, when in 2020, the U.S. Treasury and Federal Reserve began giving a form of universal basic income to individuals to essentially stay home during the pandemic and not physically go into work. In addition, lots of money was also being given to small and medium-sized businesses, as well as increased quantitative easing and zero interest rates. The sheer amount of dollars in supply is known as inflation and will ultimately require increasing interest rates to control. However, that has the risk of stagnant stock markets and stagflation, which is a problem. And all of that is yet compounded yet more by U.S. government debt that is held both domestically and internationally. Because the U.S. government is seen as the bank of last resort for foreign entities, they buy U.S. government bonds. The U.S. then runs a massive deficit that it uses to fund its government infrastructure. And while I'm on the topic of debt owned by domestic and foreign, let's think about the foreign risks to the U.S. dollar regime. Debt is a big one. Debt ownership is another. U.S.-friendly or subsidiary countries like Japan own a ton of that debt, but so do countries like China, who have an antagonistic relationship with the United States. It makes the entire situation complicated for both foreign countries and, in particular, for the U.S. We have also seen the rise of alternative currencies as reserve currencies. Think about the Chinese currency, the Rambini, but also things like the ruble, which is currently, as of now in 2022 or early 2022, 
pegged to gold and oil. And in a complex move, the Indian government is now doing business with the Russian government in a direct rupee-ruble trade agreement. What has been true since the growth of China and other countries and the relative decline of the U.S. is that ultimately those countries have found it in their own interest to keep the dollar regime alive and to keep U.S. hegemony active. In a kind of reverse imperialism, the countries who have been so dependent on the dollar and the U.S. military cannot risk the U.S. dollar or the U.S. as a political force to collapse. It is, in my view, now these countries who are forced to support the U.S. economy, namely the EU, Japan, South Korea, Australia, Canada, New Zealand, Singapore. Outside these cultural military allied countries, some others with heavy trade, such as India, China, Brazil, Mexico, also have reasons to keep their connections to the USD alive and indeed the dollar alive. But that relationship is falling apart, slowly but surely. How? Because the US government has been using the dollar as a weapon and as an instrument of foreign policy and as an extension of its military objectives by other means. Economic sanctions are of course not new in history, but they are when you impose sanctions on anything from multiple countries to people and banks and everything around it all at once and all at the same time. The US even forces secondary sanctions, meaning anyone doing business with those who are sanctioned can get sanctioned. So what are sanctions, you may ask? Well, it's doing business in the US or with the US dollar. And any link, even an odd one, can end up with you being sanctioned by the US government. As of April 2022, so many countries are sanctioned, including superpower Russia, that the sanctions are now meaningless and now actually hurting the US dollar itself. In many ways, the US is itself sanctioning itself. Blanket sanctions have forced people and countries to avoid the US dollar and even the euro in some cases to avoid Western sanctions. It has encouraged the rise of the Chinese Rambini as an alternative to the dollar and as an energy exchange currency in its own right. Many countries, businesses and individuals, in order to preempt potential sanctions, I mean, you don't know when, who, what can get sanctioned, you might as well protect yourself now before the sanctions happen, right? Ultimately, though, sanctions don't work on large countries, but can smash smaller countries into smithereens. Smaller countries make life hard for people in the country, ordinary people. Sanctions in these small countries make you suffer personally. If you are in Russia and have decoupled your economy from the West, and are a big superpower, you can actually survive a sanction pretty well. But if you're Cuba, you're not going to be able to. And if you're Venezuela or Iran or North Korea, you're going to get crushed. As I post this episode, Venezuela, Russia, and Iran, who are some of the biggest energy exporters in the world, all three are under US sanctions. 
making the U.S. sanctions regime somewhat worthless because these countries can and do now get around them. Because what happens is that if you sanction some of the biggest energy producers, it causes high energy costs. And if they're the, also the biggest food producers like Russia, it also creates high food costs. Combined, it creates inflation out of control. Smaller countries, maybe poorer countries, cannot survive such an incident. Thus, the U.S. itself, overusing and abusing its own dollar dominance, leads to the ultimate decline of the U.S. dollar itself as the singular reserve currency. Let me give you an example. India is working on trade with rupees into rubles. So India's counterparty will be the Russian ruble. That means the U.S. has no knowledge or interaction of that trade. In my view, the petrodollar era, the dollar regime era, is over already. But the dollar will be propped up by countries who have a vested interest in keeping the dollar around longer, such as Japan, Korea, the EU, UK, and so on. But after the Western sanctions on Russia in early 2022, even those countries are getting wobbly. Tired of the myriad of US sanctions and moral preaching, countries are open to trading in non-US dollar currencies. Saudi is open to accepting Rambini for oil, for example. Russia repeats for oil, as I mentioned. And all of this would have been unheard of because this was the US dollar regime. It was the only option. Now it's not. And this trend simply got accelerated by the US and Western sanctions on Russia. Okay, so that's all for this episode. Please like and subscribe. All the best. Catch you soon. Till next time. Bye-bye.